Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. In addition to our courses on yoga, meditation, and personal development, Commune also offers an array of social impact courses, including Unwinding Prejudice, Redefining Leadership, and Organize a March. If you are interested in enrolling in any of these course offerings for free, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. Right now, I think we can all benefit from learning and growing in order to better serve our communities. So five years ago, I had just moved to Los Angeles from Brooklyn, New York. Um, it was February 2015, and I found myself meandering through the Hollywood Farmer's Market, which sprawls out through the heart of the district every Sunday. As an East Coaster, I remember being amazed by the volume of ripe avocados, fresh kale, and artichokes, and other assorted produce in the middle of winter. Tucked near a hummus stand on the west side of the market, I came across a young woman pecking on an old typewriter. Her name was Jacqueline Suskin, and she wrote extemporaneous poems for people. Over the years, she's written over 40,000 poems at this poem store. Jacqueline and I developed a relationship, and she ended up making a course for commune on writing poetry called Every Day is a Poem. Her book of the same title comes out in the fall of 2020. She's written a variety of poetry anthologies, including a beautiful transcendent series on California called The Edge of the Continent. On the show today, we talk about words as vessels for emotions, how poetry can forge unlikely relationships, how living in awe of the world can constantly inspire, and how her work is born from her relationship with the earth. Jacqueline reads a number of her poems on topics ranging from the future, nature, and healing. Jacqueline takes big, thorny issues and makes them relatable and intimate. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jacqueline Suskin. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. You have one very specific example of how you were able to kind of develop a relationship with a, a, a senior executive at, at a timber company, someone who would probably exist from a political or social perspective in complete diametric opposition <laughs> to who you are. But, uh, but can you tell that story and kind of how that kind of shared humanity sprung forth? Yeah, I mean, it started with me writing a poem uh, at the farmer's market up here in Arcata, where I now live again. And I was doing what I do. I was just there writing poems. And this man came up and asked for a poem. And he was kind of uh, skeptical, which are those are my favorite people. Like, they just think what I'm doing is uh, novel. They're drawn in by the novelty. And then I write the poem. And they're either silenced uh, or they surrender to it and cry maybe. Um, but he was, you know, really taken by what I had written. I wrote him a poem about being underwater and I didn't know who he was, even though this is a small community up here, I don't know everyone. So he just seemed like another person to me, but later I got an email from him and he was requesting that I might be able to create something for uh, his wife who had passed away. Um, and, opened up this whole intimate relationship with him and his family. And it wasn't until after I had written that poem that I realized who he was, that he was this timber baron, um, somebody who was engaged in, you know, the timber practices, which are highly controversial. And as an earth worshiping person, I have obviously a lot of uh, issues with that world. So I was able to develop this familial connection with this person through poetry and this experience of uh, the, the loss that he and his family had gone through. And 
this, this was a huge lesson for me about this bridge that you can make, um, which started with poetry and then expanded into conversation. And just by being open to him and who he was, which to be honest, in another situation, in another setting, I might not be. He's someone who people easily demonize and, you know, dehumanize. And for me, I had this in, intimate lens into his loss and his grief, and I could really only see him as a person. And so that enabled us to create this friendship and, you know, have all these conversations and read many books and things that we probably would never talk about together and that he would never be exposed to because I was so tender with him and so open and he was able to be that way with me. And now at this point, I mean, it's been many, many years and I've been to many Thanksgivings with his family and I'm close with his kids. And he kind of stands as this example because at some point in the midst of our conversations, he saw how there was some potential to connect with uh, local folks who are really uh, up against what uh, the timber companies are doing. And they actually ended up collaborating and setting all of this land aside to never uh, cut this old growth forest. Um, so it became this example of what happens when you find a way to connect with someone who seems like they could be your enemy or uh, seems like someone who is not uh, human and what happens with the conversations that you develop with that person and what kind of potential like outcomes occur. Now all these trees are there and that was sort of a unique experience. I, I think after all these years of, you know, being friends with him and his family and, and living up here and connecting with all the people who do protect the forest and who try to, you know, keep the timber companies from cutting all the old growth, there's this balance of understanding the individual versus the collective and like how sometimes individual connections and the patience that they require will actually create some really impressive change. And then a lot of times there are not outlets for that. It's hard to reach the people who are in positions of power. So if you ever can, trying to figure out the poetry of that moment or the place of connection is just so powerful and so much can come from that. Yeah, that's a beautiful thought. And I suppose the currency that you used is poetry. The, that currency for connection is poetry. And it, and it doesn't have to be kind of this very literal understanding of poetry um, of like, I'm going to sit down and write myself some verse, mm -hmm. um, where I think you're saying it's almost finding a poetry in the moment in... Ah, oh, God, the essence of it that can create some sort of connection where it's not just like, you know, yelling at someone mm -hmm. in a Facebook comment or whatever. I guess, you know, this is one thing that I've been thinking about lately is that we tend to blame a lot of the ills of society on personal wrongdoings or personal kinds of, um, of, flaws like oh that person is anti-environment or that person is racist or that person doesn't care about gay rights or whatever it, it happens to be at that moment but oftentimes it's often it, it can be the systems and structures in which those people exist um you know for example you know this gentleman neil who you Matt, who seems like actually a quite beautiful and tender human being, mm -hmm. at least you accessed a particular part of him, but is in a structure that does not have great tenderness for the earth. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people have the ability to change structures because we've created them, but, you know, you need a way in. Um, yeah. That way in is I'm I'm really interested in that and like the power of like the artistry of that and how much patience and care it takes. And I always say that you you can use compassion as a tactic. Like you can have a goal in mind, um, something that you want to show someone. And if you use compassion to teach that or 
illuminate that. It works um, not always, but it often works um, in such great ways because it softens the person first and then they can be more open because a lot of these issues that are so systemic and so brutal are really the root of it a lot of times is these folks have not had access to this knowledge that there is another way or that there is a broken system that they're a part of. And so now I see this moment, you know, as a person who is radicalized at a very young age and has been like studying and paying attention to all of these radical ideas and then now watching so many people wake up to them. And I, I feel this sense of, yeah, this is, this is a, a shift where people are now finally turning towards um, these concepts that they probably just didn't ever understand how to access or even know that they needed to. And I saw that happen a lot with Neil, you know, he would never have accessed these concepts unless I were there to use my compassion as a tactic and get him to kind of open up and uh, then read all these books and have all these conversations with me and kind of put himself out on a limb in his company that, you know, doesn't think the way that necessarily he does or I do. Um, But he found a way to do the same thing within that world and, you know, create change, like in, in this weird system of the timber industry that still has a long way to go. But yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about awe and cultivating awe, because it's something that you talk about um, as I think part of your just general living, but also as it um, informs your poetry. So can you talk a little bit about what awe means and then how you harness it for your work? Yeah, um, I, you know, I don't know where that word, how that came into my life, but years ago, it started to be the focal point of my understanding of how I like, get through life. Um, I, as I have this ability to connect with all these people through my work, I feel this sort of uh, duty or responsibility to express how I exist in the world, how I can, you know, have this ability to hold such space with poetry and otherwise, and how can I like teach that to people? And awe sort of became the root of my understanding of how I get through my days and how I write. And so I started to look at that word and, you know, it's this excessive state of wonderment sometimes. And then sometimes there's, um, you know, this underlying depth and even fear is, is mentioned in the actual dictionary definition of awe, which I like because it's sort of like this recognition that everything is very impermanent and it is here just for us to be in awe of. And that there is like this, uh, sense that if you can tap into that in any moment, it doesn't matter whether or not you're looking at something really, truly beautiful, or if you're trying to understand how to feel about something really, truly awful, um, you can find this sense of awe around it, which is just even to be like, how is this happening? Like, how are we experiencing all of this, like the sensation of being alive, the, you know, all of your senses connected to it? Um, and then just kind of training yourself to carry that lens of awe. And I find for, for my life, that's what will shift me out of despair or that's what will shift me back into like an energized moment where I'm like actually excited to, you know, face something that maybe would normally be exhausting or, you know, just to celebrate my life in a more consistent way. Cause I, I, wrote a book a while back about writing lists of things that you like as sort of a mindset practice. And it's definitely connected to that. It's like, how do you train yourself to see the world with eyes of awe instead of, you know, missing there's so the, the, the detail is countless, it's endless. So the, that seems to me like just this practice of training oneself to, to see that in the world. And then there's your like infinite plenty of writing material, you know, your endless bounty of, you're never gonna have a, a dry spell if you're always in awe because you'll be able to write about anything because then anything can kind of draw you in. And I like to task people with that.
I wonder if you'd read a poem. Um, there was one that we talked about before that I felt kind of really directly connects with this notion of awe. Um, a poem that you wrote called Future. Would you, would you read that? Yeah. Future. I can't see my future clearly. It's a wash of color and light. Maybe a glimpse of a house with wood floors, the death of a parent, a dog, a cat, a love, but nothing certain. I like its fog. Inevitably, something will happen. Pieces will fall into place if I keep breathing. And I'll eat, I'll work, I'll learn and know and forget. There'll be another bowl full of berries, a hot cup of tea, additional travel and sorrow. There'll be a clean pair of pants, the sun's good glow, a cut in blood, a hole to dig, a bath to take, a mistake to mend. What lies ahead is a promise standing in shadow, one second pasted to the next. I don't need to call it by name. A riddle ensues, a song of guessing, a vow of risk. The road becomes itself, single stone after single stone, made of limitless possibility, endless awe. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I, when I first time I read this, I was immediately taken by it. Um, because you seem to embrace in it um, a certain kind of surrender to the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that feels awesome <laughs> in, <laughs> in the real meaning of that word. Well, this is from um, my book, Help in the Dark Season, which kind of explores like childhood trauma, moving into adult relationship, and then moving into like a great period of healing. And to me, this poem is like the culmination. It's this, I think it's the last poem in the book. And it's just this sense of listen, we don't really know what will happen, but we do know that it will keep happening. And I I love the part that it's like this vow of risk that you take by just like loving it and giving into life itself and and knowing that that there isn't really anything promised that's clear, but just knowing that it's worth the, the risk of kind of putting one foot in front of the other and just experiencing the whole of it. I mean, I, I, I think in this moment, I'm, I'm remembering this, this really powerful time in my life where I can, I'm, I must've been writing this book at this time, but just kind of talking to someone about why do we stay alive? Why do we keep doing this? It is so hard to be alive. It is so challenging. It's exhausting. It's painful. It's brutal in so many ways. And of course it's also like so incredible in so many ways, but my answer to that is just I'm I'm far too curious to give up. Like I have no idea what will happen. That is just amazing to me. Like it could be anything. You know, we can think of things and try to visualize and, you know, manifest our futures. But really like what happens is a surprise. It's this incredible, you know, gift of the unknown. And instead of letting that be a drag, I'm always just like, that's where I choose to put my awe, you know, just letting it be this great unknown that could turn out any way that we can't can't even imagine how it'll turn out (laughs) yeah yeah i mean for me this really um sort of scratches my buddhist itch (laughs) to some degree which is you know sort of seeing consciousness or being or your life or what it is like to be you um as a kind of experience of transitory phenomena kind of happening moment by moment, or in this case, stone by stone, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, the conceptual mind is so connected to certainty, mm-hmm. to the past and projecting the past into the future, um, that we can be lost in that thought or that pattern of thoughts sleepwalking most of our life mm-hmm. um, and trying to always control um, and, you know, which is potentially more of a patriarchal or, or mm-hmm. male concept, um, but always tempting, uh, always 
following that need to control. And, um, and that causes so much stress and anxiety to be in that conceptual mind that needs to know all the time. Mm-hmm. And because we live in that place a lot of the time, that I think our actions end up being very misguided and sometimes very destructive um, versus really trying to be in the awesome of that moment. Um, anyway, so I, I really enjoy this this one quite a bit. No, I, love, um, I love the way that you just talked about it. I mean, I think that that circles back to what you're saying about all of these like systems. And I mean, really all these systems of oppression are all based on this concept of control and exactness and the, the fact that people are um, placed in such a limited place of thought around, you know, what life can be because of these systems. I I just, I so often think about what greatness is actually possible. I mean, the human condition is this expansive wild thing that just gets put in, you know, horrible, horrible limiting places. And what, what would happen if, you know, each person could open to, the limitlessness that actually is possible for them. And I think about that with poetry a lot because often a poem is a thing that gives this key or a doorway or like will spark something in someone that's like, wow, that is a whole truth that is possible for me to touch and understand. And it's very different than what I usually think about. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And also it, it poetry for me, doesn't always register with my conceptual mind. Mm-hmm. It registers often with my heart mind, if that makes any sense, mm-hmm. where you could explain empirically or clinically some sort of conceptual component, or you could translate that last poem into sort of empirical prose. <laughs> and I would have sort of an understanding and an appreciation for it. But it is the magic of the of the words that finds a comfortable seat in my heart which shifts me in a way that not that no textbook could ever <laughs> shift me and i don't know what that is but it is there's a magic there yeah i think that pays tribute to that concept of yours that words are these vessels for emotions and if you really think about the emotive world, that is maybe one of our most confusing, most unknown, most secretive aspects of being human is this emotional realm. We do so much work in the healing and wellness community to try to like tap into what that is. But really like the truth of it is, is it's a great mystery. You know, it's a uh, lots of it can be tied to biological reaction. And then a lot of it can't, there's just this missing link there. And I think poetry often just holds that, you know, it's like a cup yeah. for it all. <laughs> yeah. It's what science cannot explain the hard problem of consciousness. I mean, science is absolutely brilliant and flexible and protein in so many ways to explain so much of what happens it it can offer clues into objective reality or at least intersubjective reality but it can offer no clue (laughs) into why we feel the way we feel and or it certainly hasn't thus far so we need to find other means for it and i think you found it I want to ask you um, about your connection to the earth, which is obviously in your work um, kind of very apparent. Um, But maybe you could talk about kind of how that relationship formed and grew and what it, you know, a little bit more of what what that harmony is. Yeah. my earth worship has evolved over the years. I mean, I always kind of say everything I do is for the earth, like seeing the way that I impact people and how I can 
heal and connect with people through poetry, that really what I'm doing is trying to help people, you know, transform, become better, like wake up, however you want to put it, and that then they'll treat the earth better. Because I just see this planet as this perfect gift. I mean, this incredible system that just gave us everything we needed. And then, you know, we proceeded to do our best to destroy it. Um, We still are. But I always have this little prayer that just is like, may I get exactly what I need so that I can give the earth exactly what it needs. Um, And this sort of reciprocity between, you know, the the non-human world um, and how I just feel the earth as an entity and this great like cyclical gift that exists between all the creatures that get to live here. And I mean, I I think I've just been connected to the wholeness of that since I was a little kid. I I kind of, uh, I wrote a poem about this a while back, but my first memory that I can access is of lifting up this uh, like flagstone in my yard and there being all these giant nightcrawler worms under there and sort of having this like, little tiny person moment of understanding that there was so much more going on than I could even possibly comprehend. And I, yeah, I kind of have carried that and built off of that and just uh, that that's my greatest source of awe um, and to communicate with plants and place and, you know, uh, not create an otherness between myself and nature has just always felt like the most natural way for me to exist. And I see the way that the earth, you know, is, is being hurt, but I'm also, um, you know, I, I'm on, on understand my role in it. And I take that role pretty seriously. Yeah. Could you read, um, a poem? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe I, I have earth speaks in front of me. Yeah. Uh, Earth Speaks. As I sat down to start writing this poem, I heard a hawk call. I pulled the curtains to see four wide wingspans circling above my house. I had to run outside. I had to lie down and look up. They went higher and higher into brightness. My eyes watered for their redness, for the white clouds, for the brilliant sun. A few years ago, I was lying on the ground in the backyard, I was weeping again about lost species, careless use of land, trash, negligence, oil, and plastic. I asked the earth if I could help, and it said, you are helping, you are, you are. One time I walked the plum orchards on the side of I-5, barefoot, and ready to feel the pain of that dried out acreage. How could this field feel joyous with its sad, repetitive crop? with its thirst and poisoned history. When I could no longer see the interstate, the earth announced a clarification. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll survive all of you. I stayed on my back until the hawks disappeared. Yes, let my voice move through you. We are one and the same. Thank you. Yeah, it is... um odd that we often think of environmentalism or sustainability as a human anthropomorphic issue problem. (laughs) Um, And I suppose that's how we do things often, but that, um, yeah, that addressing our behavior as it pertains to the earth and climate is just a, it is really more about our ability to exist on this planet um, and that the earth will survive us all, um, which is, seems obvious, but I don't think we think about it that way a lot of the time. Yeah. It's like, a balance of the equation of understanding that yes, the earth will be just fine. And like remembering this moment that this poem was inspired by of like really deeply understanding that and connecting to that. But then also over the years, finding a way to understand that, you know, 
my concept of, of the earth and wilderness and nature has actually shifted greatly because I see now how significant, you know, there's so much indigenous wisdom uh, just that explains if you have a positive relationship with place, with land, if you, you know, tend to land it's healthy for both of you and the the facilitation of that and holding space for that kind of transforms and turns itself into my work also as a poet because although maybe my poem isn't directly affecting the landscape it's shifting someone's mindset about how they can connect with it and then there's like a full layer peeled back there to reveal this you know, infinite number of possibilities for each person to connect with the place where they live. And a a lot of my poetry is just about that. You know, I have this whole series of books about living in California. And that that poem is from my, my book about Los Angeles and like what living in a city was like for someone like me and how much I learned about, you know, just what I believe in and what I trust in the human you know, day-to-day lifestyle and what I just think is a- absolutely off course and how do, how do you, like, help people see that in themselves? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose our relationship with the Earth is all about storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading Yuval Harari, who has been uh, very influential on how I think about the world, and, you know, he was talking about animism, mm-hmm. which it was basically you know when we were on the serengeti you know as hunter and gatherers that you know forager communities really looked kind of spiritually um as being absolutely one with animals and nature mm-hmm. um and it wasn't really until kind of the agricultural revolution that then we started to tell ourselves different stories mm-hmm. that gave us uh, dominance over the earth. And of course, one of those stories, many of those stories are codified in Abrahamic religions um, and and even before that, theism, um, that in some ways gave us permission to, um, you know, to, to use nature for our own benefit. And, um, and those are just stories, you know, and human beings are, you know, these are, these stories, you know, told cooperatively that create our identities, really, if you believe in structuralism, which Mm -hmm. sort of says, you know, the world shapes the self, the self doesn't shape the world. So if we can create new stories, Mm -hmm. um, it really shifts our entire relationship with, you know, with how we see the world. So it's, um, yeah, yeah. I see that happening a lot right now. I see this like just a moment where people are becoming receptive to the fact that there are all of these, you know, black and indigenous leaders, people who are visionaries who have already come up with, you know, the plans. And uh, I think, uh, a human condition is to get caught up in the moment of, you know, fear and think that we have to reinvent the wheel. And I, I see this as a moment that's actually the opposite of that, where there are all of these people who have been oppressed and silenced for so long, who are absolute geniuses, and they have all of the answers, you know, they've written books, they've talked the talks, they've been, you know, screaming these things, but not been heard. And now to see this shift happening in our culture, where it's actually like, this stuff is going to come to the forefront now. And we just step aside and make space for that instead of, you know, swallowing our own pride and whatever, you know, becoming terrified that there's nothing we can do. There is plenty of action, there is plenty of uh, concept, there's plenty to pull from the stories are kind of uh, waiting now to be told in this different way. And I see it happening, which is, I think one of the most inspiring parts of this moment in time for me is this like ability for all of us to come together and listen to these people who have not been listened to and find a, what incredible space they're holding for a future that is, you know, much brighter than what the past has been.
together. Come over to my house. The front door is ajar. Enter and find me on my knees, limp and weeping. Kneel with me. Let us build our harmonies here. Wallow with me and bite into grief. After we have drenched our clothes, after all is touched by the taste of our uncontrollable salt, we cradle one another. We rise up, interlocked, nearly ready to feel ready. And then morning turns tactile, like ripe peaches in our mouths. Words drop heavy from our lips, and suddenly we find the sweetness. We hum, we sing, we lock eyes and taste our singular breath. Inhale, exhale, sob harder in praise that cracks at our chests, joyous in our being. For if we are alive, and we are, we can conjure up some spell of change to split the seams of darkness, to call in a new light as we do again and again and again and again together. Thank you. This one paints such a vivid portrait for me visually, um, <laughs> which, you know, I'm sure is just personal to me. And uh, I suppose that's the really beautiful thing about poetry is that it is so protean and appeals to humanism in the sense that, you know, it can really be understood by the beholder. Um but I'm curious, really, what this meant to you, and and why did you write it, and what the inspiration was, and I suppose also just really kind of what it means, because this one, this particular poem, I think has a lot of representational value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this came from the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, many many years ago, and I was living in LA. And living in my tiny apartment and watching this movement take hold and listening to people have conversations, you know, whether it be on the internet or in public, uh, about something that had been so unspoken. And I saw this light being shined on this pain and this brutality. And I, you know, my process with poetry is often to, you know, click into the macro, the collective experience to let myself sit in that and meditate in that. And then usually something will just come through me. And this, that's what this poem was. I just, you know, I, I felt like this great understanding of some process that um, not maybe needed to happen between people or possibly was happening between people like all around the country and this sense of us, you know, giving into the grief and like moving through the grief and the sadness. And then that, that line that's like nearly ready to feel ready. I, I feel like that that's like, and now we're ready. Like we've been like processing and pushing for years to try to, you know, come together in this sense of, you know, where we can really meet each other. Um, and I, I've, I revisit this poem a lot and it's sort of a prayer for me. I can kind of like envision doing this with people and people doing this together and, uh, this grief process, this mourning process. And then this, the ending is just this understanding that we are alive and this is what we do as humans. We Mm. come together, we conjure up change, we conjure up newness, and we do it side by side. And I've, I've been thinking about this poem a lot during the pandemic, because of how hard it is for us to actually be connected, and how it's not possible for us to cry together in a lot of ways. And, and, and then seeing the opposite of that of people being like, our lives are on the line at anyway. So we are going to come together and we are going to grieve and we are going to move into the next phase because our lives are already threatened. So we're not going to let the pandemic stop us from making this change that we have to make. And so I've been returning to this poem a lot um, and just kind of, like I said, envisioning people being able to have this space together. 
Yeah, I mean, I I find it particularly poignant, and I would say this just about your work, um, more as a general comment too, that it takes a big, complicated, thorny, massive societal issue and turns it into something so intimate and and personal that almost as if it exists between two people kind of double helixing around each other, um, yeah. you know, in the sunlight. Um, and it's, um, and I think when you can understand some of these issues in very personal and intimate terms, they become way more real and kind of tangible, like a, you know, like a ripe peach, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, versus like just something that's happening out there that seem, that can be paralyzing in its enormity. Um, yeah, this, this one feels like just so intimate is the word that I just keep coming back to. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's like the gift of, of what poetry can do for folks right now, always, but right now, especially is, you know, there is a lot of, I like that you use that, that like paralyzing feeling. Um, cause I often talk about how the, the, the trick to being able to be present and stay engaged is to recognize how it's, the macro and the micro all at once. It's like looking at the great picture of things and then being able to tie that to intimacy, to person, you know, personal choice to each like section of your life. That's very intimate. And poetry is always doing that. You know, it's your specific personal lens that then opens up to the greater feeling of the world and like what kind of bridge that makes. And I, I keep returning to this, concept right now that really is what's been grounding me in my ability to stay fully active and energized and, you know, to continue learning and to continue having conversations is this sense of holding hope and hopelessness at the same time. And being like, you don't have to always be hopeful and you don't have to always be hopeless. It's best to be both all at once to understand that it is entirely possible for newness to occur for progress to happen and at the same time everything awful can still exist and we are trying to keep that those scales in balance instead of you know lending ourselves to only one side of the spectrum um and i i've been applying that a lot to my work and a lot to like the way i feel about what's happening in the world is you know there are great things that are coming out of this like it is working like people are being illuminated they're thinking of things that they have never thought of before and that's incredible and at the same time you know you can't just fully celebrate that and live in the world of optimistic hope you also have to be like and still systems of oppression, racism, this is not done. It's not just over because we're all shining a light on it. Now we have to do all the work to change it, but that, you know, you can hold that hopefulness and the hopelessness all at once, then you're really doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have been in my own kind of personal inventory trying to discard notions of looking at the world in such a binary fashion all the time mm -hmm. and just even in kind of my own soul searching and understanding you know in what ways i have benefited or been complicit in systems and structures that have perpetuated great inequality to come to terms with the fact that i'm generally a very good hearted compassionate person and have also been complicit in structures that are inherently evil mm -hmm. and so to live in that and is hard mm -hmm. and it's not norm doesn't feel normal yeah you know, i've also been thinking about hope and despair or hope and hopelessness and uh i had this visual of 
I think a lot of the way people have deal with those notions of kind of pulling both edges of a frayed shoelace in opposite directions and, you know, watching that kind of unravel in both directions of hope and hopelessness. And that can be uh, like, I think a word that I've heard a lot of people use on all sides of all equations right now is exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And when you pull at both edges of hope and despair, um, it can exhaust you. It can wring you out. And, you know, I've been trying to just sort of just hold that shoelace, that frayed shoelace in the palm of my hand tightly Mm -hmm. instead of trying to pull the edges of it so um, intently. Um, and, uh, and sitting with that with a little bit more peace and equanimity. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if, if you're okay to close with, um, our episode today, and I feel like we could have many, many more, mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, and maybe you could set it up a little bit cause you would set it up better than I would cause, um, cause you really know the genesis of it. Um, but you wrote, um, something called my poetic purpose, which it, it almost feels like a call to action to yourself <laughs> on some level. But maybe you could talk about it a little bit and um, and then read it for us. Yeah, um, this poem I, it, com- it comes from this place in me that is always checking in with why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, no matter what that is, um, but I, I feel really dedicated to that practice of always like just really making sure I know what my intention is, what my purpose is behind what I'm doing. And specifically, I make sure I look to that with poetry. And I was just meditating on that one day and went to bed and woke up at three in the morning and turned my light on and wrote this word for word. Um, that doesn't happen very often. Usually I edit things. Um, but this is, uh, something that just poured out and I felt like it was, you know, there are, there are these really beautiful moments that happen sometimes where I feel like, uh, whatever it is, is speaking directly through me and the words are, you know, I'm channeling something or however you want to put it. And this is just one of those poems. And I, um, I feel like it just kind of encompasses everything that I believe in. So it is a good place to kind of wrap up. Um, My poetic purpose, to create relief, to offer support, to give alternatives, to conjure compassion, to reveal clarity, to be selfless in service, to show acceptance, to assume responsibility, to be an endless well a mirror, and an outlet, to hold space for healing, to remain present and remember the wide reach of our shared suffering, to consider my duty, to make and remake meaning, to take care, to provide deep connection, to see the common link, to shine a light on similarities, to let our story show us how, to hand over my voice, to steer us all toward awe, to sacrifice my agenda when new truth is made known, to bring the depths to surface, to do the worthy work with grace, to question and develop my intentions, to honor life in any form, to renew forgiveness, to try and be kind, to try and be gentle, to let my fire loose when it needs to be let loose, to believe that rebirth is constant, to revere, collect, and display the details, to define beauty again and again, to point out solutions, to suggest the highest power, to refine our definitions, to present pure purpose, to craft answers in lyric, to remain humble and willing, to rest and revive, to expose the source, to share the wisdom, to listen and respond, to uncover our abilities, to find the bright part in every being, to rejoice openly, to witness the worst pain and find a lesson in it, 
to open myself wider and wider, to do the work in public, to bring forth the language of the earth, to honor my own effort, to make an example of my devotion, to let it often be dark and hard, to cast out that which is not needed, to give up many comforts in the name of logic, to stand as a steward, to weave a sturdy link between us and our place, to display the significance in any little thing, to never forget about the body or underestimate the mind or neglect the spirit, to cry and howl and break, to freely reimagine the best way to be, to delve into the fearful areas, to withstand the mistakes we keep making, to bring enthusiasm, to nurture transformation, to love limitlessly. Thanks a lot for listening to today's show. To learn more about Jacqueline and her work, check her out at JacquelineSuskin.com. And you can also check out her commune course called Every Day is a Poem at OneCommune.com. And of course, email me anytime with comments or questions at JeffK at OneCommune.com. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.